Today's episode of the two-man power trip of wrestling is brought to you by our sponsor, Blue Chew. Stay tuned a little bit later on in the show and find out how you can take advantage of our very special offer and save on your very first order of Blue Chew. The upcoming presentation is a two-man power trip of wrestling podcast production. What's up, guys? It's the phenomenal AJ Styles. You're listening to the two-man power trip. Oh, my God. This is Joey Styles, and you're listening to the two-man power trip podcast. This is Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. This is Cody Rhodes, the prince of pro wrestling, and you are listening to two-man power trip. This is Jimmy Vine, the boogie Wooker man. Tell my people and my brothers and sisters, don't you dare miss John and Chad. Hey, everybody out there. This is the franchise Shane Douglas. Remember me? <laughs> well, guys, it's great to be on on the show again. I appreciate you asking me back. So you said you were going to pinch yourself. I didn't know it was that kind of show now. I mean, if you guys are in the privacy of your own home, if you want to do these things. Good. How you doing, Chad? Hey, Johnny. Cool, man. What's going on? We ready to go or what? Uh, hey, man. What's up, guys? This is Homicide. Oh, that's my homie. Homicide with a big homie club. Yeah, that would be it. Hey, this is David Penzer, and this is the two-man power trip of wrestling. Well, thank you, thank you. Hear me, fear me. I don't do many wrestling shows anymore, probably because I'm a bit ignorant. You guys probably know ten times more than I do. Look, Mean Gene, I can't be beat. I'm the greatest of all time. And I would say that. And every kid up, they knew they could kick the out of me. Great talking to you guys. It's been your pleasure. <laughs> They've worked in and around the wrestling business. They've studied thousands of hours of wrestling, and now they bring to you the greatest legends, Hall of Famers, creative minds, and both current and future stars of pro wrestling. They are Primetime Pod and Chad, the two-man power trip of wrestling. Power Trip of Wrestling, brought to you today and powered by our good old sponsors over at Blue Chew. Stay tuned a little bit later on in the show and listen to how you can save a little bit of money by taking advantage of our offer with Blue Chew and BlueChew.com, a special promotion that we've got going on right now. So stay tuned a little bit later on into this show and hear how you can have a really good night, courtesy of the two-man Power Trip of Wrestling. But if you didn't know by now, my name is Chad, and as always on the two-man power trip, I'm joined by my tag team partner, the one and only J.P. John Paz. And on today's show, we welcome in a member of the legendary Crockett family, once known as the cameraman for Jim Crockett Promotions in WCW, as the one and only Jackie Crockett joins today's program. And of course, you know his father, Jim Crockett Sr., the patriarch of the legendary Crockett family, and you also know his brothers, Jim Crockett Jr. and David Crockett, as well as the Crockett Foundation, a family organization established in 1931. The Crockett family, absolutely synonymous with professional wrestling, being huge in terms of the wrestling promotions of the 1970s, the 1980s, and some of these uh, absolutely amazing moments that took place in the NWA and the Mid-Atlantic region for so many years. 
that we all look back upon now and we think of so fondly when you think of timeless individuals like the man with the golden tongue, Gordon Soley, or you think of Dusty Rhodes, or you think of Magnum TA and Nikita Koloff, and of course, Ric Flair, the Four Horsemen, Arn Anderson, Tully Blanchard, the whole nine yards, all those members of that iconic 1980s NWA and Jim Crockett promotions. It was Jackie Crockett who was the one sitting there and filming every one of those promos that you saw on Saturday morning that were getting you into the arenas, whether it was the amazing feud between Dusty Rhodes and the Four Horsemen, whether it was the evolution of a guy like Sting starting to climb through the ranks, it was Jackie Crockett, the man behind the camera, who was showing you everything in front of your eyes unfolding. And to think that his career started off as just a little kid hanging up posters and setting up the ring and selling tickets, it was his evolutionary style of shooting wrestling and kind of throwing in the, uh, the element of getting right into the action that really had not been seen up to that point. And he's going to tell us all about kind of the, uh, and I'll even say a little bit more for me, the nerdy part of getting into the nuts and bolts of a production and how you put a wrestling program together. But he's going to give you so many great stories of having fun with the boys and going out and partying it up. Jim Crockett promotion style back in the 1980s and just giving you some gold here. So I, I really don't want to dig too much into it. This is a fun interview. And when you're solo for these intros, it's kind of hard to sit here and talk to yourself. So I don't want to beat around the bush. I do want to get it over to Jackie Crockett. But I also want to talk about the Crockett Foundation. And we've had such a great association with the Crockett Foundation over the last two years. And if you haven't been able to check out their website, and that website is crockettfoundation.com. There you'll get the whole entire history of Jim Crockett Sr., and all the endeavors that he went into with professional wrestling, as well as minor league baseball, and to see what the organization is doing in terms of helping out veterans, as well as finding homes for so many service dogs, and doing an amazing job to spread awareness for so many great causes down there in the North Carolina and into the Southern Virginia area, and the Crockett Foundation and the two-man power trip, uh, many more things to come between the two entities. We have had such a great time being associated with the Crockett Foundation. And if you want to learn more about their history, you want to learn more about the team, head on over to thecrockettfoundation.com, and there you'll see the involvement of both Francis Crockett, who's the oldest child of Jim and Elizabeth Crockett, as well as Debbie Ringley, who is the oldest grandchild of Jim and Elizabeth Crockett. Just amazing people. And we've worked with Debbie in the past, and she is just she is such a nice person, and we have thoroughly enjoyed all of the work we have done together. So I don't want to beat around the bush. Let's get it on over to this interview here with Jackie Crockett. I hope you enjoy a little bit of a time portal back into the days of Jim Crockett Promotions. And that's enough out of me. Let's get it on over to this interview and strap in, folks. We're going to go back to the Crockett era with Jackie Crockett. Now for some TMPT business. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Two Man Power Trip and at Wrestling Pal. Please subscribe to us on YouTube. Also, subscribe to us on iTunes. Please leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Also, while on iTunes, check out the feed for prior legendary episodes featuring the living legend Bruno San Martino, the late great American Dream Dusty Rhodes, the Enforcer Arn Anderson, Ray Mysterio Jr., Glenn Kane Jacobs, 
the phenomenal AJ Styles, lead WWE attorney Jerry McDivitt, and so many others. Also, while you're on the internet, check out ProWrestlingTees.com. Yes, that is ProWrestlingTees.com. They are your superstore for all your wrestling t-shirt needs. Check out our page. Check out Tito Santana, Coco Beware, Kevin Thorne, Magnum TA, and so many others. Also, while you're on the web, check out our website, tmptofwrestling.com. And for all you Android users, please hit us up on Google Play or Player FM. And all you iOS users, please check us out on TuneIn Radio, Automatic, Spotify, and now iHeartRadio. And now, without any further ado, he is a member of the legendary Crockett family. He is an innovative cameraman who worked for both Jim Crockett Promotions and World Championship Wrestling. He is the son of Jim Crockett Sr., the brother of Jim Crockett Jr. and David Crockett. He is the one and only Jackie Crockett. Please enjoy. get you rolling so let's uh let's get into this right now and joining us on the line tonight is the very first member of a very prestigious wrestling family to join the two-man power trip we are so incredibly stoked to have you on he's a former cameraman for jim crockett promotions and world championship wrestling he is like i said a part of the legendary crockett family as the one and only Jackie Crockett joins us tonight. Thank you so much for coming on with the two-man power trip of wrestling. You're welcome. Uh, we, uh, we are so happy uh, that we've been able to, to kind of get involved with, uh, with the Crockett family and the Crockett Foundation over the last couple of months. Uh, we had the duty of taking on a pretty big task of a show that went by the wayside last May, but the foundation and the two-man power trip teamed up and we've been able to kind of uh, get some pretty cool things done ever since. So, Jackie, I just got to say, welcoming you in. How are things going in your world, and uh, what's new with Jackie Crockett? Well, I just, you know, things are doing well. I've got, uh, I live in Spartanburg. I have some properties in Myrtle Beach, and uh, I just sort of bounce back and forth and uh, go fishing or, you know, just play around. Hey, I was the camera. I was, 
I was senior cameraman for World Championship Wrestling for 32 years, but as I was also 25% owner. So that meant I got to do what I wanted to do. <laughs> I couldn't be fired. And um, uh, when we first started shooting the wrestling uh, with our own television truck, prior to that, it was always inside a TV studio like WRAL or WBTW in, in, or WBT in Charlotte. And uh, it had just happened that uh, before that, Jimmy and I, I used to have to shoot all this stuff our high spots and things in the buildings on 16 millimeter film. And I didn't have any special lighting and stuff. And uh, I used to have to bring the scoreboard down to light the ring up more. And uh, there used to be a thing, I'd take the uh, film in, if the light wasn't real good, I'd ask them to push it one time. And it's that's a little bit of a variance in the development. And uh, one time it didn't work out well. And Jimmy kept telling me that I wasn't worth a crap. And uh, he he would always come up at the end of that conversation, why don't you stay at home and I'll mail you your check. And so he came up with that, and I was at spring training shooting headshots for the ball team. We owned the Charlotte Orioles as well. And uh, he said that, and I said, you're on. I took two years off with pay and went out and studied still photography. And when we started doing the, the TV out of the truck is when I came back and uh, really jumped in with both feet. And I shot all the specialty stuff, uh, the interviews. Um, television was sort of in its infancy. Um, you know, people, they were used to the house matches where they just come running in the ring. And I had to educate them about television and, and where the cameras were. And when you go into a building and you set it up and you set your cameras up, you've got like, uh, you get three of them around the ring, you got... Uh, well, one's a high camera that's in the far corner. Then two and three, your your uh, hard cameras across from the ring. Well, all these sections of seats are blocked out. There's nobody in it. So when the wrestlers are doing their stuff and they hit their high spot and the crowd's going, they go to the crowd to get the cheer. And I kept trying to explain to them. I said, that's fine. I said, you may have 70,000 people here, but you got 7 million on the other side of that glass. That's where you need to throw your attention to. And so we had to change thinking. And like on the entrances, they just come running by me. And uh, I'd have to go back and speak with them later on, tell them, you know, this is your time. When they're walking out to the ring, everything is focused on that. If they can say, hey, you know, if they're new to the territory, they can say what they want to say, or I'm going to beat so-and-so up, or I'm going for the championship. This few seconds are their moments, and they shouldn't run by it. You know, they should, you know, we worked with the developing the character and uh, the color and stuff. And um, I'd crawl up in these guys' faces. And um, it was nobody's bigger than me. <laughs> and, yeah, you know, I just got to, you know, you had to kind of educate people about stuff. And I was learning as well. Um, you know, I used to run all the way around 360 around that ring trying to get a shot, but that confused the viewers at home. And so we, I solidified that down to where you had uh, one hand held on one side of the ring and two on the other. And somebody came out the front of the back side, you shoot across, you don't go to it. And it just little stuff. And um, it was fun. 
Oh, my gosh. I mean, yeah, you've seen the whole evolution of television and wrestling. And you mentioned your brother, of course, uh, Jim Crockett. And you met, you know, your other brother, David Crockett, the announcer. And, of course, your father, Jim Crockett <laughs> Sr. And you guys are literally, yeah. you know, you're wrestling royalty. And, and John and I coming from the Northeast, you know, we got Jim Crockett promotions. We got TBS. So we got to watch it growing up. But, you know, I've moved down to Virginia, so I've come to appreciate what – Jim Crockett promotions meant to this fan base down here, but in being also a TV geek and a broadcasting major, you know, learning about what you did with the camera work, you were there for the evolution, like you said, of television and wrestling, and it's gone so far. But as it was evolving, did you always have to kind of keep up on not only the technology, but how, uh, you know, the different styles of the wrestlers were moving along the flow with television at the same time? Well, I mean, I've been watching these guys all of my life. I was born in the business. Um, I used to put posters out on the, the posters on telephone poles. I'd have to get out in the car and stand up on the bumper so you could see it. Um, I put up the rings. I sold the tickets. My father had us do every job there was to do. So when I walked into a building, I know what needed to be done. I knew how to do it. And um, I was the first one to get there and the last one to leave. I have never had a class in photography. All of this stuff I picked up. Uh, I was uh, very lucky. One of the gentlemen that we hired, Emerson Lawson, he knew computers. He was fabulous with stuff. The uh, Like the companies, Ikigami and Sony, would send us equipment to test because we were so hard on stuff. You know, we do two, three shows a week, and they'd be hundreds of miles apart. And then sometimes we'd hit like Disney and you're doing three, three, four shows a day for a week. So we were tough on things and people would send us stuff to play with. And that was always fun. <laughs> and then you had, well, it was like uh, our television truck was, it was like a, a six camera truck and the Japanese rented that for the masters and they would take that thing. And of course the Japanese come in with all of their uh, razor ed te- technology, which they're six months or a year ahead electronically ahead of the United States. And they would come in and start tweaking our truck and stuff. And, hell, we should have paid them. But, you know, they were explaining all these things to me. And I pick up stuff. If I see somebody do something and I watch it a couple of times, I take some notes and stuff. But, you know, I can can figure it out. But I've never had a class in photography. It's just, it's an eye. I've got it. Jimmy and David were the suits. I was, I was the color. Uh, I did the interviews. Uh, I helped develop the personalities. Um, before they had all the internet and we have to used to do all the shows. You know, we ran three towns a night, seven nights a week in the Carolinas, and uh, Virginia, and a little bit of West Virginia. And uh, so there was a lot of miles in the car. And everybody, you know, you got four guys to a car and stuff, and you start throwing crazy ideas around. And that's how these these angles would develop. You you know, you'd figure stuff out and uh, how this guy's going to win. You got to you know, you got to squeak him over. You don't want to kill the guy he's against. You don't want to put him in the dirt. But uh, you know, you got to eke it by. And uh, it's like when you're watching television. The only time that you see championship matches is during a rating season. The rest of the time, you're going to see. Uh, you know, Mr. Superstar against Joe Jabroni. Um, but when ratings come around, that's when you see your matches. Uh, you can figure that one out. 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And one of the things you kind of alluded to before is how you got right into the action, and, and Jim Cornette's gone on record many a times to say that you'd be so <laughs> close to him sometimes that he'd be taking out the phantom money and asking you to give him a little bit of space because you were right <laughs> there. And that became almost yeah. like, you know, like the trademark. So I, I guess with developing that, did you just kind of do that instinctually to, to get up there as close as possible, like you said, about the entrances, but to give – the fan, that close view of the action, make it feel well, yeah. like you're right there. Yeah, that. yeah and I've, I've tried to watch some of this other stuff now, and these guys are scared. They never take the cameras off their shoulder. And I, did, I didn't have to look through my viewfinder all the time to know what I was shooting. I could hold it straight up over my head. I knew what was going on down the line. And so, you know, if a guy would go up in the corner to do a, a you know, a dive into me, I'd, hit, I'd go to the floor and get give him as much height as possible. I want him to look like he's coming off of Mount Everest. And when he hits that floor, I'm coming up with him. I'm swinging the camera up, and it's going to be over my head. And so it's it's a flow. It's a dance that you do with these guys. Each one of them, of course, has a different way of doing things. But I came up with them. I shot the interviews. I knew the personalities. I knew what the, what their specialties were. And when I used to shoot the 16-millimeter stuff, I only had a few minutes of film. It's a 400-foot magazine. And so I only had a few minutes of film. And so I had to talk with these guys and tell them there's going to be one move that you're going to do only during the match. That's the one time you're going to do it. And when you do that move, I'm going to start filming in order to get their super finish. So there are things, you know, I worked out. I worked with these guys uh, I listened to them talk. Uh, I gave them suggestions. Of course, you know, they were the character. They should do what they wanted to do. But, uh, you know, I tried to help where I could to give them the visual stimulation that they were looking for. Um, and I used to shoot all the interviews. And we had to shut it down every now and then because I didn't want to, didn't like what I was hearing. But, uh, <laughs> you know, it was, it was a lot of fun, especially when you got to go out and, um, uh, shoot the specialty pieces and things. You got to tear a few cars up, blow some stuff up. We did uh, a deal at Fort Bragg and had Missy Hyatt down there and she was going through the uh, obstacle course and she was falling all over the place. Of course, all the soldiers were out there and she coming out of her top and stuff and we about to lose all the soldiers. But uh, <laughs> uh, we had her blowing stuff up and shooting heavy weapons. and that's, Yeah, things were fun. Um, the general had, uh, he brought in some Black Hawk helicopters for we opened the show, and I didn't know they could do that. He had them stand up like uh, stallions right up on end, and they hit their afterburners and took off. But uh, anyway, his name was Steiner, because when I first met him, I asked him, I had the, the two Steiner boys were going to meet the General Steiner, and I came in there, and I was introducing everybody, and I asked the general if his daddy was a traveling man. I said, you related to these boys? <laughs> But uh, that night, uh, David had picked the building there at Fort Bragg, and it was a nice new building and stuff, but David forgot to check had the air conditioning been put in. And this was like middle of summer we were in, in there. And I am sweating. I am soaked. Um, I go back to try to get some water out of the cooler. There's nothing but some melted ice in the bottom, and I'm I'm laughing at that like a dog. Come back to the ring, and the general's sitting, sitting there. And he's got that starch uniform and stuff on. He's sweating, too. 
And I lean over. I say, hey, General, hot enough for you? He looks over and says, I've been in hotter, boy. <laughs> <laughs> I said, I bet you have. <laughs> I bet you the General got... Steiner would have loved to have had Rick and Scott right there on the front lines with them because God knows that those two guys could definitely, uh, they could take on an army all by themselves. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, I forget which one it was. Weaver had them in a, uh, it was a TV match with a couple of uh would these, and the one boy just wasn't going with the holes, and, and Steiner wanted to arm drag him, and the boy wasn't going with it, and Steiner pulled his arm out of the socket. So, <laughs> you know, stuff happens. <laughs> those, those were two. Those were two tough guys. They were. They could chew nails. Oh my gosh, that seems like a tame story compared to a lot of the ones that we've uh, that we've heard out there in the wild about uh about the Steiner brothers but I'll tell you you know and just even talking about how you know it started with the TV studio it moved on into arenas and then with WCW you guys were back kind of in the TV studio environment with the Disney shows but did you like the TV studio environment more because of how intimate it was with that pretty much that same group of fans and them knowing the product so well, was it more enjoyable to shoot those shows because of that more intimate atmosphere? Well, we got they change the the crowd out every hour, so you know you got new faces and stuff. And, um, I liked it. Uh, they brought a lot of kids in and stuff, especially children, and that's always been a soft spot with me. And I'd always make sure they got the T-shirts and stuff, and that's why I ended up. I'd always get a uh, – on our Disney cruise shirts, on somewhere on the shirt, there's a pair of Mickey Mouse ears. And my brother David used to pick all that stuff out, and he, it was a game for him. He wanted – you know, you had to go look for it. But um, I used to always get a, a bunch of the cruise shirts and made sure that, you know, these kids would get it. And I ended up with some extra ones, and I got uh, a storage room here. It's got some stuff in it. I got three wrestling mats. Off of the rings, uh, NWA, WCW. Uh, there was one ring mat that was supposed to go to Australia. It was hand painted. It's a beautiful mat, but for some reason it never went. And so it uh, kind of got lost, and I found it. And uh, I haven't opened it since, but I've got some stuff from here and there. I've got the, the flags from over top of Sturgis and uh, stuff from Australia. Yeah, I mean, we got to meet a lot of people. It was a lot of fun. Growing up, I mean, we used to do the Harlem Globetrotters and um, baseball. We had two hockey teams. Yeah, well, let me be the first to volunteer to uh, do the two-man power trip tour through the the Jackie Crockett storage collection, because that, I'm sure, (laughs) would be like a walk down memory lane. But I'll tell you what, another funny thing. So I have a friend who attended the WCW uh, TV tapings in Disney World and was handed a, ready for this one, a Sergeant Craig Pittman T-shirt. So I would love to know if it was Jackie Crockett that handed him that Sergeant Craig Pittman (laughs) T-shirt. Well, it may have been. um, I handed some out, but, you know, we fired them in the crowd. There were other people throwing them. I just sort of, um, I didn't care. (laughs) I was, I, I like to make people stars. I didn't want to be a star. When I walked down the street, I didn't want people pointing at me going, ooh, that's Jackie Crockett. 
you know, when they did it to Flair or the Road Warriors or something like that, I figured my job, I did my job right. I never looked for that part of the notoriety. It was always fun for me. And uh, it's Debbie uh, talking about some of this stuff. I gave her, I used to shoot stills as a uh, sort of a pastime. And I had the, the motor drive and the, you know, F2A Nikon with the, the zoom and yada, yada, yada. I'd fire through stuff, and I shot a lot of my stuff on slides because back then you didn't have the, the computers as such. You had to do a Seaver chrome process, and the, the pictures would come out so much more colorful to using a slide through the negative process. But uh, I gave all that stuff to Debbie, and that's where she came out with that book. Uh, most of that stuff was, was supposed to be color. She snuck that thing out on me. That's why there's no comments on there. I didn't know that crap was happening. She wouldn't have got it. <laughs> that book uh, I've never let my stuff out. Yeah, I've yeah, never let my stuff out. Crazy. If anybody has a chance, and we're going to give the huge plug for the foundation uh, throughout this in the beginning when we do our intro and then also at the end of this interview here, but if you haven't seen that book or if you haven't had the opportunity, it's literally it's history. So to know that you know you had given so much to Debbie for that book is it's really, really cool because um, it is an amazing book. Well, and, and whenever I have an opportunity, I'll be glad to sign it for them. Um, all the proceeds go to the the foundation. We get nothing. Um, every penny goes to the foundation, and they do a good job with it. Um, it's it's I, I pity Debbie. <laughs> I know what she's going through, and none of us would do it. <laughs> we get, Hell no, we're retired. We're not going through all that mess. <laughs> but uh, that's, that's too far. you know we were running 3,000 night with the wrestling I had 70 home games with the baseball I was in charge of concessions for that I sold 110,000 hot dogs the first season um, and we had uh, 23 dates a year on the globe trotters I had uh, sportsman shows in uh, Greenville South Carolina Charlotte Knoxville um, and then a, a, a buku of rock and roll shows uh, a lot of James Brown. We did James Brown for years and years. Uh, when I was growing up, my father did the Motown road shows, Dick Clark road shows. Um, uh, he helped with, uh, he co-promoted the Beatles' first tour. Uh, I remember I was in Atlanta laying in the middle of the field when they were borrowing me of a helicopter. And I just covered up and went back to sleep. <laughs> it's been a colorful life. Uh, I'm surprised I live this long. If I know not to live as long, I wouldn't pay so many bar bills. <laughs> <laughs> That's great, but you know, it's it's so funny too. You mentioned with the minor league baseball, and you guys have such a, a rich history in, in minor league baseball, and just like with wrestling, and just like with television production, minor league baseball has evolved into this monster, uh, you know, fan attraction. Whereas it just used to be that breeding ground of, uh, you know, of a, of a major league team or you have your independent league teams that are uh, in a nice place to make a, a little bit of a living. But now minor league baseball has become this absolute monster. So do you enjoy seeing that as well, seeing what you guys have done for so many years now evolve into really a huge business that minor league baseball has become? Yeah, I mean, our attendance uh, records broke everybody else's, but I was always fascinated about the – the structure of the team itself, how some of the guys were under contract to the to the, the mother team, 
But some of these guys were just scratching their butts just trying to get in and just working hard at it. And uh, I mean, we had uh, like Cal Ripken played his rookie year for us. What a nice guy he is. And uh, I used to shoot all the headshots and stuff, and we kept them there at the ballpark. And somebody broke in the ballpark. We found out later on they burned the ballpark down to cover the robbery. And I thought all my headshots and stuff were uh, burned up. But I'm bad about rat holes and stuff between books. And so when I moved from Charlotte to Spartanburg, I started finding all kinds of crap. And I found the, uh, the two sheets of uh, headshots. And the first two shots were Cal Ripken and his rookie year. And so my nieces, have, uh, they were ball girl, pepper girls at the ballpark. And um, they had, uh, Lisa had stayed in, in contact with him. And I had his phone number, so I used to keep calling his secretary. I said, tell Callie, he needs to give me a call. So I got a picture of him when he had hair, and he was good looking. Oh, I keep telling him that. I keep telling him that. But uh, <laughs> he came down, and uh, my niece had breast cancer that she is in remission through doing okay but she did that uh uh whatever the pink lady the pink ribbon the lady that's for uh we did a fundraiser for that in charlotte and cal came and and was speaking and stuff and i showed him the hedge uh, i did a larger print out of the the head sheet and stuff and we were over there talking because this was before he ever played this first major league game this was spring training and you know the innocence that was in his face he had no idea what the future was going to be bringing and what the future did bring to him. And it was fun to, to sit there and throw some stuff around and remind him how many hot dogs he used to eat. We used to give the players free hot dogs. They come in there like they were starving. But uh, it was a lot of fun. Klondike, Klondike Bill, he was our maintenance man. Old Klondike, he was out there working in the middle of winter, nothing but his T-shirt on him. Overall, he was out of Canada, but uh, he was quite a character, a good man. Oh, yeah, uh, crazy uh, Klondike build. But if I could, you know, Cal Ripken, <clears throat> amazing story. But if I could go back just a second to that awesome book that obviously Debbie and the Crockett Foundation put out, When Wrestling Was Wrestling, and obviously, you know, your your name is right there on it. But, you know, is it crazy that the uh, the glory days of wrestling are kind of like that far gone, you know, we're never going to see the glory days of wrestling again. Yeah, I mean, it's it's overemphasized now. It's over um, capitalized, I guess, because oh well, here tune to the website and get your souvenirs and everything's you know they're just punching for the next buck. And you don't you don't see a lot of wrestling. You know, your entrance is longer than your match. <laughs> <laughs> So that you know that tells me a lot. I mean, you don't have you don't have the talent like you used to have either. Guys like Johnny Valentine, that is the toughest man that I ever knew. I would sit there. I used to take tickets at Charlotte Park Center. Um, when I get through, I'd go down, and Johnny was usually, of course, one of the last matches. He'd knock the guy into a corner, and he'd take his forearm and come down across that guy's chest and rattle his teeth. And I'm sitting there watching this. And Johnny would drop his guard and go, hit me. And the guy comes down on the forearm. And Johnny Johnny throws him back in the corner, comes back with another thunderous forearm, rattles the guy's brain. He drops his hand, his arms down. He goes, hit me. The guy slams into Johnny. You see Johnny's nipples get hard. 
and he does hmm. another forearm and just tears that guy's head off. <laughs> hmm. um, uh, it's uh, uh, Garvin, Ronnie Garvin. He was tough. We um, were doing a deal in Asheville, and uh, a gentleman in Charlotte had just opened up a gymnasium down the street from the office, and he, of course, invited all the wrestlers to come down, and they could work out for free and stuff. You know, because they're known figures to be good for his business. So I told my son about it, and I said, "Yeah, go on down there. If you, you know, you want to work out, it's okay." And there was a guy—I uh, forget what his name was. He didn't last long after this, anyway. He was a preliminary wrestler, but he's working out in the gym. My son comes in there and says, "You know, I'm with the wrestling and stuff." And this guy comes up, and says, "Oh no, he's not." So the, the gentleman asking my son to leave, and I found out about it. And we were shooting in Asheville. And when we used to roll our tape, 58 minutes to 50 seconds later, we'd go to black. So we're rolling tape all through that time. Now, if, if people, we're showing a, a, a lengthy clip of a match to the people at home. You've got a, a building full of people, a coliseum full of people sitting here. So you put a match in the ring, dark match. And so I put Ronnie Garvin in the ring with this guy. And the guy comes out, I remember how he was dressed, because he had the full little um, little suit on with the, you know, the tank top and stuff. And Ronnie used to tie these guys up, and Ronnie would always end up having a free hand. And he, he had this guy tied up, and had his uh, top of his outfit pulled down. And this guy's skin was just lily white. And Ronnie started slapping him. And just, bow, bow. This guy's skin's going red big time. Tommy Young was the referee. Tommy Young comes over to me and says, Jackie, you want me to stop the match? I said, Tommy, if you do, I'll fire you. So he just went over and sat in the corner. And uh, Ronnie continued to beat this guy's ass until I walked up. You know, I went over. I'm, I'm sitting on the ring with my elbows watching all this. And then I slapped on the, the mat and told Ronnie that was enough. So Ronnie took him out of the ring and went on back to the dressing room. I told the guy, I said, don't ever fuck with me. So <laughs> you got you to delay great. on this broadcast or anything. <laughs> hey, no, you're Sometimes. free to say whatever you want. Oh, you can curse. All right, well, I've been I've been trying to clean my mouth up. I made an agreement with my wife. I told her I'd give her 25 bucks for every uh, cuss word I said. She drove me to a doctor the other day, and it cost me 250 bucks. So... <laughs> It slips out. I'm, I, you know, I work with all male crews. We're, uh, you're in television, uh, especially live television. You don't have time for anything. If something goes wrong, you got to get through it. Um, it's live. There's no second chances, and that's one of the fun things about it. You know, you're flying by the seat of your pants. Um, you know, places like Sturgis, you're out in the middle of they got these big heavy steel steps going up in the ring and I'm up on the side of the ring getting a shot and I'm getting ready to go down. I hear this big clang and I look down, the steps are gone. Somebody threw a boulder from the audience and hit the steps and oh. just knocked them away from the ring. I'm thinking that you know, my head would be like an egg on that thing. But uh you know, we've met president of the United States, several of them and uh We've been in you know, a lot of places. It's fun. 
I'm still some of the things we got through. Uh, we did uh, that first Jim Crockett Memorial Cup at the Superdome in Atlanta or uh, New Orleans, and uh, we're trying to set up, and they're trying the cheerleaders there are going through the tryouts, so they got a <laughs> floor. Half the floor is full of girls with not much on. I had a real hard time keeping my crew together. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can but, imagine. Uh, oh, the uh, going down Bourbon Street that night was worse. Um, it was a young lady that uh, had become attached to. Her name was Mad Maxine. The girl is like six four. She's got a mohawk haircut. I forget who she wrestled for, but she's got this mohawk haircut a big orange crushed T-shirt on, fatigue pants that she's holding up with a bullwhip and combat boots. And she's drunk and pissed off because her boyfriend had just broke up with her. And she and the rest of us are going down the street, and she's grabbing guys off the side of the street, and she kisses them, and ah, yeah, you are. They throws them in the counter, and she's bigger than they are. They aren't going to mess with her. <laughs> but that, that whole night was a cartoon. I could write a book off of that. I'm surprised we got to it. That's where Flair dropped his drawers on top of the limousine, and they called the riot police because somebody told them there was a riot, and it was just people trying to get in the bar where we were, and we just they overran the uh, number of people they could have in it. And, uh, it's a mess. Yeah, next time I do a book, I'll try to put some words in there. <laughs> that that would be great. And you know, you're saying how. You- basically you're partying with the boys and things like that. And Jimmy and David were more of the suits. Were you quote unquote, the fun Crockett? Were you like the, the one that the boys yeah. wanted to hang out with? Yeah. I'm the one that would back you up. I'm the one that can get you out of jail. Um, <laughs> I'm the one that, uh, you know, uh, I got no rules. I mean, think about it. You're in a building. The cops are mine. I'm paying them. And they usually, you know, you go to the same towns uh, month after month, and you get the same guys working for you, uh, especially like Charlotte. We used to run that like every Monday night, Greenville and stuff. And these police that work with you, they're patrolmen and stuff. But as the years go along, of course, their ranks increase. They're sergeants and lieutenants. And uh, the guy that was in charge of my uh, security for our baseball stadium was in charge of the uniform division. He investigated the other police. So whenever I'd get stopped for anything, I said, well, do you mind if I make a phone call? And he said, no, you're going to call your lawyer. I said, no, I'm going to call Captain so-and-so. And And he said, oh, why, why? I said, well, he just told me to let him know. He said, well, we'll call a record and give you a ride home or, you know, whatever. Mm. But, uh, you know, it's... uh, yeah, we treated the guys well, and they they helped us out when we needed it. So, that, everything works around. And you mentioned it before, the talent roster was just unbelievable. And you were kind of, you know, jokingly saying they're calling the riot squad, players going around naked. But what about Ric Flair and the Four Horsemen and their immense talent? Was it, uh, you know, a wild ride through JCP with the Four Horsemen at the helm? <laughs> Let me give you an example. Um, Rick Flair had to go to court for not paying child support. His wife went into court. She was like eight months pregnant and had a baby in her arms. We had 
a dozen attorneys give us a call because they had never heard a judge give this kind of a judgment before. And it was that he pay his past child support before sundown or he would put him so far in the jail he wouldn't see sun up. And all these attorneys give us a call and stuff. And so about five minutes later, Rick drives up. He comes in the office and he's wanting some money. And we look at him. He tells us a story. And we said, no. <laughs> and he just to floor him. And um, we ended up paying stuff. And we ended up putting Rick on an allowance because he just would blow so much money. Um. Las Vegas, we're out there for a convention, and oh, Rick's going to pick up the bar tab. Well, you got 30 guys, and they're drinking bottles. They didn't have any glasses. They're drinking straight bottles of Dom Perignon and had been for several hours. And I said, Rick, don't look at the bill. Our accountant is here. We'll take care of it. Oh, no, I'll do it. I'll do it. And I forget. It was like 20-something thousand or some some baloney. And so he starts, oh, oh well, uh, can you give me that? Can you? I said, man, I told you I'd pay the whole damn thing. You know, I'm not paying shit for that. You know. Yeah, no, he, uh, he's lucky that jet that he was flying around in, jet flying, that was our plane. That hmm. was the Crockett's plane. That We had two planes, prop jet and a jet. And I didn't get to fly on too often because I had to get there before all these people did and get stuff right. set up. And I had to get it torn down afterwards. But, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I love the guys. I miss them. They're, they were family. We spent a lot of time together. Um, I never dealt in the guys' private lives. Uh, the only thing that I'd ever tried to associate with them was, was my, my association with them. Now, if their wife or children had a problem, the office being in Charlotte, we would take care of them. We had doctors. We had uh you know, hospitals, we just call them up and, and doors were opened because we'd done favors for other people through the years. And uh, so, we, you know, we took care of the boys, and they took care of us. Uh, but things aren't that way anymore. They treat them like dogs now. It's, it's a mess. Hey, let's pause one second to talk about today's sponsor, Blue Chew. Guys, remember the days when you were always ready to go? Well, now you can increase your performance and get that extra confidence in the bedroom that you need by doing one thing, and that's going over to BlueChew.com because Blue Chew brings you the first ever chewable with the same FDA-approved active ingredients as Viagra and Cialis, so you know that they work, and you can take it anytime, day or night, and even on a full stomach. They also work up to twice as fast as a pill, so you can be ready to go when Whenever that opportunity arises and Blue Chew is prescribed online and shipped straight to your door in a discreet package so nobody, including your mailman, is going to know that you're getting busy later on tonight. So there's no more waiting in that pesky doctor's office or that pharmacy line and it's going to come right to your door so you can avoid all that awkward conversation that you might not want to have. But what we need you to do is we need you to head on over to BlueChew.com right now when we've got a special deal for our listeners and by using the promo code code power trip you're going to get your first shipment free and pay only five dollars shipping again it's using the promo code power trip and taking advantage of our special promotion where you're going to pay just five dollars shipping and get your first order absolutely free so again it's bluechew.com b-l-u-e-chew.com use the promo code power trip and you will be well on your way to having one hell of a night very true and you mentioned those private planes obviously players spending a ton of money do you think that you know in hindsight jcp 
with spending, you know, too much money on the planes and, you know, maybe letting the guys go too far as far as, you know, giving flair and allowance and things like that? No, um, you know, because like with the planes, you could run your main event talent. You could run a three o'clock show somewhere and then an eight o'clock show somewhere else. So you could put them in both of them. And uh, this was prior to the immediate communication that is available now. So I could run a show in in, uh, Richmond, Virginia, and then one in Savannah, Georgia, and nobody knows who won where unless they make a phone call. You know, now it's a hell of, they can watch the match in progress. So um, it was a little different. You could hide things better. Um, you know, that's why we ran three towns a night. You could do a um, a program with somebody like, you know, you've got uh, George Becker against the Bolos or, or Ric Flair against uh, Ricky Steamboat. And you could run that, you know, in Charleston, South Carolina one night. The next night could be Richmond, Virginia, and then do Charleston, West Virginia with it. And you could run it around the horn and people not know about it. Now with the instant communication, it's like everything is everywhere instantly. So, um, you know, you'd have to change with the times. But, uh, you know, now it's more worldly. Uh, when you do something that's not Charleston, South Carolina, it's you're shooting it all over the world. So your audience expands that way too. But um, yeah, it's stuff now. I couldn't step back into it. It's just because electronics and stuff changes every six months. And trying to, to get back on the wave now would be impossible. Um, I could explain to somebody how to shoot something, but the electronics and stuff that I used to know, that's, uh, that's ancient history. I'm Fred Flintstone when it comes to that. Uh, but uh, yeah, the, the, the talent is out there. They just, I mean, the talent hadn't caught up, the camera talent hadn't caught up with the technology. It's past them, and they don't understand what they're shooting. It's strange to them, and I've you know I watched it all my life. We used to have Sundays off, and these guys would come out to our river house, and we had like uh, Mr. Moto. Uh, he'd be out there cooking Oriental deal meals with us. Uh, Johnny Hadman, Sicilian, he's doing the the Italian stuff. Uh, uh, Klondike and his boats. The guys would come up, bring their boats, and you know they put anchored off of the shore, and the kids were playing on the beach. I knew the guys that way too. I knew the, the, their human side, um, and so that's kind of why I clicked with them a little easier. And I was always with them. And, um, you never trusted when I I don't when I say things. It's not just to hear wind pass through my lips. When I say something, it's true. I'll make it happen. And if you encounter me in any kind of a way, you'll realize that. I don't bluff. I don't bullshit. And uh, I don't flinch. So, you know, when I tell somebody, it may not be what I want want to happen, but up to their choice, that can happen. And it will. But, 
you know, I just, uh, I've always had to be, make a decision and live by it. And that's, that's what our father taught us is you're, you're a man of your word or you're not a man at all. So I don't need lawyers and contracts. A handshake's good enough for me. But I got the lawyers just to protect my ass. <laughs> <laughs> you need those lawyers. Yeah, I'm not stupid. Sure. But, <laughs> but uh, you know, there's a couple. There's a couple of guys though with, you know, the era of JCP, and like we talked about a few times, there's so much talent there. But a guy I wanted to mention to you was a guy like Dusty Rhodes when you brought him oh, in. Oh yeah. You bring in the American Dream. What were your thoughts on Dusty? <laughs> Get along with Dust? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Dusty Rhodes, Thunderbolt Patterson. I wanted to make them preachers. They could take a crowd in 28 seconds and have them standing on their feet screaming. And uh, Dusty, you know, he was he was doing his Southern religion character, and uh, he was a great entertainer, just uh, a huge personality. And a lot of that was just him. Uh, you couldn't. You know, your superstars and stuff, you can't magnify something that's not there. Uh, we tried it. We tried to make people something they weren't, and it just doesn't click. You've got to grab a piece of their personality. It's like flair. Um, my daddy called me in the office, and that's when I'd first started shooting some photography, and I was dating a model at the time. And uh, We used to go to the fashion when they were uh, clothing. People would come around, do their shows and fashion stuff, and uh, I'd buy some you know, shirts before they were on sale in the lo- local area and different stuff. And my daddy called me in, and, and uh, there's this little grease ball from Minnesota sitting at the table, and I forget whether he had like a checkered shirt and striped pants or striped shirt and checkered pants or something. And my daddy told me to take him out and dress him. So I was taking him over to the clothing store. I used to wear a $5 gold piece. No, it was $10 gold piece. And... uh Rick was looking at it and stuff, and he said, oh, that's nice. And I said, yeah, I should get out of jail free card. And he said, oh, I like that, I like that. I said, we can get you a 10. And that's uh, when Al Manchu said, Fields Jewelers uptown. And um said, oh, yeah, well, I can get you a 10. He said, oh, no, i got to have a 20. And that's where we picked up on that piece of his personality, that flair, flair for the gold. And that's where we started amplifying that section of his personality. And he started coming up with the robes and stuff and the pomp and the pageantry. And there you have Ric Flair. One of the all-time greatest, and obviously, you know, with, with Dusty there, one of his greatest feuds ever. You know, was was it crazy some of those shows and kind of being there and, some of the near riots involved when obviously Ole Arn and Flair break Dusty's leg and things like that. Was it absolutely crazy to be ringside or close to ringside when, when things like that are going on? Well, no, it's just when you're up on, that's when you, you stand up and take notice. You, you grab a hold of the situation. Um, I mean, you know, it's coming. It's a work. Um, so, you pull in your security. Uh, we had Doug Dillinger, who was in charge of our security. Uh, he knew what was going on and stuff. So he would bring in the forces if there's going to be a problem like that to, you know, line the way and get people out. Um, yeah, I mean, that's that's what you're there for is to bring them out of their seats, whether to cheer. I mean, uh, 
Ric Flair was the best babyface heel you ever had, just depending on who you put him against. If he went against Ricky Steamboat, he was a heel. If he went, a, went against uh, a Steiner, he's a babyface. Dusty was always kind of a babyface. He, he'd lean to heel now and then, because that's just part of him. <laughs> but um, yeah, some of these guys were, were amazing. It's, uh, it's like when they used to do color. They do a blade on the end of their finger. Some of them, and you know the match goes on, and they, they gig their forehead. You've got a lot of uh, blood vessels and things there, and plus you're sweating, so it, it can look like a lot of blood. Sometimes if you hit it in the wrong place, it is a whole lot of blood. I got a picture of uh, Engelbert Humperdinck. Uh, Engelbert ran his mouth. He came into the office. We used to we paid the guys percentage. Um, especially your main event guys and stuff. Of course, they got a higher percentage than the other guys. And uh, Humperdinck comes in the office and thinks we're cheating him. And so we, hey, here's the ch- ticket stubs if you want to go through them. Here's the box office reports that are made out by the Coliseum, not us. And, you know, here's the check that we got or a copy of it. And so we proved to him that we weren't stealing from him. Well, because of his mouth, we wanted to, show him a little bit that he needs to shut up. We did a deal where we re- called it run around the horn. That's where you send him, you know, through your South Carolina, North Carolina, Virginia groupings where you can have this match each night somewhere that the people in the next town wouldn't know about it. But you got five minutes with the manager. And so I forget who he was managing then. And then of course, the guy would lose the match and the other team it's five minutes with Humperdinck, and they beat the shit out of this guy. I got a picture of him in Charlotte. He's got a blood clot reaching down to his knees. It was just before he got in the shower. They had beat him up so bad. And uh, when he came out of the shower, I said, you going to question the count next time? No, sir. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you got it. Was a, it was a stiff business. Um Greg Valentine and uh, Ric Flair, they were ferocious with each other. They were so tight. Um, when we were going to, they, they would stand in the middle of the ring and chop each other until their skin split and bled. Hit, they were hitting that hard and just laughing about it. And we would have to get Flair to stop doing it, you know, like six weeks before we were going to do publicity photos on him. Because I didn't want to spend twenty grand for an airburst artist to get all this crap out of the way, where they're standing there True. chopping each other. So there was a lot of personalities that would clash with each other, and you know, hey, you 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 know, you pulled my arm a little bit last night. Well, I'm gonna twist your neck a little bit tonight, and you had to, you know, you had to pull them away sometimes, because you know people got hurt. You're bouncing around a ring like that or off a post, and. Uh, there's no way you're gonna. There's no way to fake coming off a corner post, you know, 14 feet down into the mat on the guy's back. What are you gonna do that with mirrors? That's, that's baloney. You got to be good about it. I mean, if a guy takes a, just a simple uh, body slam, if you don't land right, it's gonna snap your spine, just like a pretzel. So there's there's a lot of, you know, tricks and moves in in wrestling that you can't fake. Uh, and we never use capsules for blood. <laughs> I always thought that was humorous. 
uh, we never ever it's it's always real blood from the wrestler and uh, they either cut themselves or they did the hard way. That's what I was trying to get to earlier. Some of the guys yes. didn't like blades. They'd go hard way. They'd just stand there and stick their face out, and the other guy would, you know, give them a, a glancing blow on the eyebrow trying to split that skin. And uh, there's, a, there's several guys that were that way. They were tough asses. But they were out of the uh, the older wrestlers. When you know, when I first came in, you still had wrestlers. Uh, excuse me. Um, well, they weren't just out of the carnivals, but uh, it was a lot of pig Latin that was spoken um, in the business, and uh, you know, they're kayfabe and everybody. And, um, but it's like I said, it was always a lot of fun. Uh, you know, you pull up to a building. Traffic's backed up for miles around it and stuff. It makes you feel pretty good. <laughs> you got the mayor and the city council calling for tickets. You know, you got a good show. Oh, yeah. And so many great shows that you guys had. So many, you know, amazing wrestlers. Can you just think back? You know, maybe even I was thinking of maybe like Magnum and Tully. Was that like a fun thing to tape because you know that the, the guys are you know they're really laying it in you know you don't have to cover anything up while you're shooting you know what i mean they're really you know nailing each other oh yeah i mean uh the guys now they you see them uh the the shows now and somebody comes down with a forearm or something the camera cuts mm-hmm. to another yep. to another shot so you never see the actual impact because there probably isn't any and the guy if he's not talented is going to miss by a mile and so that's why there's a camera cut right there. They're covering. They're, I can, you know, I like to, to keep the person's attention. I always had motion in my shots. Um, that gives the director something to cut to. Like two guys or, you know, whatever. Um, they get in the ring and, they, and somebody, bing, bang, boom, the crisscross, boom, 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 arm drag, and they go to a headlock. Well, they're just sitting there. So if I'm out, I'm going to start zooming in. Or if I'm in, I'm going to start zooming back. There will always be motion in our shots. I never wanted a still, still shot. That's boring. And uh, every you know, people still people shoot stuff now. They they do all of that, but um, nobody had done it before me because nobody had done the TV. So, but it, you know, you always kept the motion in so you, the people at home would always be involved in it so but yeah that's like the match we were shooting with rick flair he just came back from japan and he had the uh neon white shorts on he got over there and he took his couple of body slams and he's there's zing zanging all over the ring and uh he takes a body slam he gets up and I noticed a little spot on the back of his pants, and I figured oh, it must be some trash in the ring or something. Bing, bang, boom, he takes another body slam. Well, spot's starting to get a little bigger. And after the third body slam, uh, we figured out uh, Mr. Flair's tummy was upset, and we needed to just <laughs> shut down. We were wasted tape. <laughs> but he was one hell of a talent, and the man could get undressed faster than anybody you ever saw. We were at some girl's party, 
and I got out of the, the car the same time. He was in the front seat. I was driving. I got out of the car the same time he did. By the time I got to the front of car, front of the car, he already had his pants and his shirt off and still had his shoes on. But uh, <laughs> it was, uh, yeah, sometime when you, you're not on the radio, I'll tell you some of these real stories. and uh, It's really, uh, you know, I'll go back to an easy one. Klondike Bill, you know, he, he wore the bib overalls. We used to stay at, uh, it's like a Howard Johnson's or something up in Richmond. And Steve Kern was just there from Florida. He'd just come in. And you got Steve Kern, Andre the Giant, uh, me, and Klondike. And we're just sitting in the room. You know, we're all talking sodas and beer, whatever. And uh, Steve Kern gets a pair of Andre's pants. The, over, the overalls, he goes in the bathroom. A couple of minutes, he comes out. looks like he, you know, he stole them from his big brother. He's overlapped here and there and everything. Well, Andre gets a pair of Klondike's pants. He goes in the bathroom, and he's in there for a while to the point where, you know, we're kind of like, uh, Andre, you okay? Knocking on the door and say, he finally comes out, and he looks like he's poured into these pants. He's going to explode if he breathes. And so we just, you know, we stepped outside and walked around kind of the front of the hotel, and uh, there was a guy checking in, and it was the nighttime registry where he had to go through the window deal. And so the guy was out of his car, and he's facing the window. And Steve Kern walks up to the, his side. He's about you know six or eight feet away, but he's where the guy can can see him right off to his right. And Steve's standing there with his arms crossed and no t-shirt on, these big ass overalls. Uh, the guy keeps looking over, and of course the desk clerk saying, uh, "How many people?" And the guy goes, "One." Well, Andre is right behind him. He doesn't see Andre. Andre leans over and goes, two. The guy looks over at Steve. Steve's still standing there with his arms crossed. And the desk clerk says, well, how many nights, sir? And the guy says, one night. Andre's, two. And the guy's starting to get pissed off now. He's looking over at Steve, and he's jumping around a little bit. We're all sitting over in a car laughing our ass off. And uh, so finally, they, they do the money routine, and the guy, the clerk slides the key out the window, Rondre comes down and reaches over top of the guy's head, comes in on him, and the guy starts back up on his arm. And Andre, thank you. The guy screams and jumps in his car and tears out of the parking lot. <laughs> but, uh, we were in uh, another story about Andre. We're a quick one. Um, we're in uh, Canada. I forget it was like Toronto or something. But uh, Andre had some friends up there, so whenever he went up there, he used to uh, reserve a car for him, a, you know, a big car, and he would drive, go see his friends, and then come do the show. Well, this time he gets to the airport, and they didn't have any big cars. All they had was an Econo car. And so they, he has them take the front seat out of the Econo car, and he drives from the back seat. <coughs> and he said he's going through an intersection, he's got a green light, and this drunk hits him, runs into the side of him. He said, demand he get out of his car. He run around. He yelled. He screamed. He said, I opened the door. He said, demand he come up. He yelled. He screamed. He said, I put one foot out. He don't scream no more. Two foot out. He back up. He said, I get out of the car. I go over to his car. I turn it over. Easy foreign car. 
I get back in my car and I leave. The cops are going crazy. They're laughing. They pull up and there's a guy in the middle of an intersection. His car's turned over and he's trying to tell him he's drunk and he's trying to tell him this 20-foot giant turned his car over. And so they they uh, put him in a straitjacket and put him in a padded cell in the hospital. They thought he was nuts. And Andre started telling them what happened. And they went crazy. They said, he's in a padded cell. They thought he was crazy. <laughs> Andre, <laughs> that is easy. great. That is great. There's so many awesome stories. But, you know, I don't want to go on because I could probably ask you a million different stories, a million different things. But I'll start to wind it down a bit here. And I just want to ask about, you know, the end of Jim Crockett promotions and selling to Turner, but you kind of still sticking around. What was it like when JCP ended up selling to Ted Turner and WCW? Well, uh, it was kind of, I told him I didn't want to work for Turner. I didn't want to work for anybody, but see, I did the television and I shot the interviews. I shipped the shows. Um, you know, I didn't sell the TV shows to the stations, but I, I supplied the stations. I supplied the shows. Uh, I shot the interviews. I, we did. Uh, we had like 258 regional TV shows a week that ran our show, and these are the number of, of shows that I'm having to ship out of my office per week with commercials in them. And uh, that on top of the, the baseball and everything else, people thought I was a screw-up. By, by the time they got to the building, I'm either asleep on the ring or I'm out in the parking lot chasing some girl. I was single, and uh, I partied. And um, so they just thought I was a screw-up. But when it came time to, uh, you know, Turner's people came in and they, you know, watched our setup and stuff, and they said, we can't do this. Uh, You've got to do it. You know, you've got to train somebody. I said, I don't want to train anybody. Tell them how to do it and get out, but... They waved a fat check at me and told me I didn't have to go into the office and do shit. So that works for me. <laughs> uh, all I had to do was travel and shoot the show. I had to go to CNN probably five times um, when some of their boys went on uh, vacation, you know, shoot some interviews or something. But um, I didn't do office. I didn't do suits. Um, I was lucky. Um you know, I I could do what I wanted to, but in the same respect, I knew what I should do. And that's the way that I went. Um, when we had stockholders meetings, uh, I remember one of them had had the, the attorney had a, you know, a separate air conditioning unit for his meeting room and all this baloney. And uh, we went in there and the, the temperature went up like 25 degrees. We crawled each other's ass. Uh, we don't. My brothers and I don't cut slack for nothing. Uh, if you do it, you own up to it. If you don't do it, get out of the fucking way. Um, and that's just you know that's the way we were brought up. We were the end of the line. When I got sick, I didn't have anybody to call. <laughs> Who am I gonna call? Me? No. Uh, <laughs> uh, I never had a boss. I never worked for anybody else other than the family. So that made me a little different. When I was growing up, my mother couldn't stand me. She, when I was 15, she sent me off to military school for three years. <laughs> I still turned out like this. <laughs> it didn't help. Oh, it was it was ridiculous. 
three teenage boys. We were fighting, and they had two cars. And, uh, we tore up the house one time. And uh, let's see, Jimmy went to <laughs> Jimmy went to I think Carolina, and they sent David to Tennessee Military Institute. I went to Tennessee Military Institute, then Forky in the Military Academy for the next two years. I figured out if I keep my mouth shut, I wouldn't get so many demerits. That was back uh, when the headmaster used to have a paddle, and you could either walk your demerits or he'd give you a whack, one whack per demerit. And, man, he'd lay that stuff in. Then I smartened up. I said, well, I can't count the number of underwear you're wearing. So, but, uh, yeah, I'd go into town. My butt would still be burning when I was coming back. But it was fun. The only thing that restricted me was myself. So uh, it was it was fun creating all that. Um, my son Chip went to the uh, main school of photography, and I went up there to check them out. Damn if they didn't offer me a job. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I told them no, thank you. I don't. I, I don't talk to people very well. Surprised I talked to you this long. <laughs> Probably because I just started yeah. down here. I've been in the car for four and a half hours. But, hmm. um, that's a little bit of, of things. Um, there's so much more. Um, but the beginning of the wrestling and the, the television part of it uh, was really fascinating because uh, television graduated up with us because. Uh, when I was shooting with 16 millimeter, that's when they first started coming out with video. And I had a Sony video setup that never, never worked. I never taped a damn thing on that thing. I tried, tried to get everybody to work on it. Uh, that's when video was in its infancy. Our, our TV shows were a two inch videotape. They weighed like 28 pounds a piece. So, but, uh, a lot of fun. And you've been there, you've seen it all, obviously, from the beginning of JCP to all the way to the end of WCW when Vince bought them out. So, I mean, you've literally been there, done that, seen it all. Was it kind of weird and surreal to kind of be a part of all the way to the beginning, all the way to the end, and have Vince buy it out? Well, no, I mean, juniors want to take over the world to start with. Uh, that's... When his father died, he was, oh, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to start running in all these towns and y'all can have all the secondary territories. That's when we started buying territories and getting the TVs. That's when we hit national syndication. That's when we, you know, both of us seemed to level out. And I think it was good for him that there was competition. It gave us a comparison. And, you know, we had the number one show on cable for a number of years and um, he was always trying. I kind of wonder about, you know, some of the people that were in charge, and then they immediately went over and started working for him. So that's kind of fishy, but, who, you know, what the hell do I know? But, um, yeah, it was a lot of fun. And, like I said, you've been there, you've done it all, you've seen it all. Do you have anything that, like, sticks out, like a favorite match or a favorite angle or a favorite moment you know, throughout your whole career, just there maybe one or, or two things like really stick out to you is, is you know, really memorable and really 
you know, lasting on the wrestling business. Hmm. That'd be hard. So I've seen so much talent go through. Um, I would have to say just individual wrestlers matches like, you know, the Johnny Valentines, and, um, Billy two rivers and, uh, you know, the guys like Tuton Harris. And then you got, uh, guys like Ricky Steamboat that were just like such stars that just never really, um, I don't know. They could have been so much more. I don't know what held them back. But there was you know, a lot of talent. It wasn't a particular angle that I liked. Um, you know, anyone that I thought of, sure. But uh, it was a lot of fun. Um, <laughs> I mean, when you got... Uh, who was it? Uh, well, obviously, well, it's been a huge, it's been a great walk down memory lane. I mean, this has been a huge accomplishment for us to come as far as we have and to, to have you on. It really means a lot to this show. But I guess as we wrap it up here, uh got to ask, uh, when you look back at what the Crockett's have given to professional wrestling, what would you say the lasting legacy of the Crockett family is in the world of professional wrestling? Um, the way we treated the fans, I guess, you know, you're supposed to start at 815, you start at 815, your main event's supposed to be this, you give them your main event, you give them what you say. Um, always be fair, uh, do what you say, uh, and it's, it kind of stuck on, um, you know, Junior does it, he, Vince Junior, um, yeah, he never was a senior. Senior was a good man. But um No, it's it's just uh, I don't know. Kinda like watching your ex wife go out with somebody. <laughs> you don't want them messing around. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, what can you do? Um they've they've really commercialized it and capitalized it and but, you know, people at home, they need the color of the pop and the pageantry to stay entertained. If you don't have stuff going on, people are going to change the channel within five to eight seconds. So I don't generally talk to people that much and explain that much. I was always the guy at the end of the line said, kayfabe, and we talked talk to somebody else. That's all gone now. Y'all are doing a good job. I appreciate this. You're, you know, you've been, you know, obviously we're talking about the legacy and going all the way through and you know, through JCP and WCW and stuff. Did your father always want you, you guys to be in the business and always kind of just? <laughs> no. Or, or was it, oh, didn't. No. Um, I was always, when I was growing up, I was always confused because everybody's getting on me. Oh, wrestling's fake and stuff. And daddy never talked about the business. Um. I tried to, you know, talk to him about it, and he said, no, that's, uh, it's sort of uh, it's like religion. And if you believe, no explanation is needed. If you don't believe, no explanation will do it. Um, just, you know, tell him to keep watching. He never smartened me up until I actually went to work for the company. Uh, you know, I knew the guys from, you know, having dinners with us on Sundays and and I'd go to the shows, and I'd see the intermingling and stuff. But, you know, I was 
I came up as a, a young child through all this stuff. And so I never saw anything different about it, you know. Uh, that was just an ordinary thing. But it was uh, it was fun. To answer your question. Okay, yeah, I've hit my head a few times. I hit my head a few <laughs> times. Sometimes I wander. <laughs> yes, uh, it's pretty funny that sometimes the fathers don't want the, the sons to be, uh, you know, to be a part of the business. But obviously, everyone ended up being a part of the business from the Crockett. So it's it's oh, pretty yeah. cool. And uh, well, everybody had their own level. Uh, you know, Jimmy was like the. You could buy Jimmy a thousand dollar suit, and in ten minutes, it looks like he slept in it. But you know, he had a good head for business. David was the suit. He was like the salesman and stuff. And I was, you know, I just, uh, um, you know, I made things go. And I took care of the boys. So we all had our fields of interest. And I was the one who used to generate all the parties. <laughs> oh, geez. <laughs> Partier, you know, River, and obviously there on the more serious end. But really, really want to thank you for all the uh, all the time you gave us tonight. And of course, have to mention the great book when wrestling was wrestling over at the Crockett Foundation. You can find that at thecrocketfoundation.com. And obviously, the Crockets play a huge role in the Crockett Foundation. Oh yes, yeah, I back I back that stuff. Yeah, no, that's our family. Family sticks together. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I appreciate, thank you. Yeah, I, I appreciate all you've done. Yeah, thank you very much for uh, coming on with us tonight. We really appreciate all the time you gave us, and good luck to the Crockett Foundation, and, and hopefully we'll see you on down the road. Well, thank you very much. Hopefully I'll see you. Please come up and introduce yourself. Thanks for listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling, What the World is Downloading.